0: This is Make Yourself at Home, BizNOW's podcast where we discuss the pandemic and its impact. I'm Miriam Hall, BizNOW's New York reporter. Today on the program, Jessica Katz, the Executive Director of the Citizens Housing Planning Council, an 80-year-old housing think tank dedicated to improving housing in the city. Jessica joined the non-profit from the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development, HPD, and she's speaking here about the challenges of setting affordable housing unit targets, and what the group is hoping to see in the form of policies from the mayoral candidates.
1: The homelessness numbers are roughly at the same level as they were a year ago. We expect to see rent burden come out. Usually that survey comes out about once a year, but we would expect to see rent burden numbers get worse as rents have not really softened that much, especially at the low end of the rent scale. And so many people have lost their jobs, so people's incomes have really taken a hit.
0: It's interesting you say that because all the talk that we hear from the developers and from people in the real estate community is that the rents have tanked. It doesn't sound like it's filtering through to the people who would really benefit from a, from a drop in rent. Well, I think at the luxury end of the market,
1: that's true. So I think if you're looking for a very high-end apartment, if you're looking to rent one, you can probably get one for a bargain these days in New York. But at the low end of the market, it just has not reached that um, you you don't see that at the low end of the
0: market. So it's when people talk about all these opportunities, it's only for a certain subset of New Yorkers.
1: Yes. And the low income New Yorkers who are looking for the lowest rent apartments are also the most likely to have lost quite a bit of their income over the past year. So they're in even worse shape than they were a year ago.
0: You were previously an assistant commissioner in the Department of Housing Preservation, um, HPD. Uh, the city, of course, famously under uh, Mayor de Blasio set a goal of, I believe it's 300,000 affordable housing units by 2026. And so from all the articles I read and all the press releases I get, that number is being hit or they hit the targets each each time they kind of assess it, or at least they say they do. Now that you've been sort of on the inside of the city and on the outside of the city, but still very much in that affordable housing and supportive housing space, when you think of setting those goals, how do you kind of rate that approach? So I think a unit target, uh, like you said, I was working at
1: HPD for many years under more than one mayoral administration. And I think as a management tool, that's an incredibly important target, but that's a management tool. It's not a housing policy. Right, so we're we're building an ever greater amount of units, but I don't think that your average New Yorker understands what the purpose of those units is, who they're for, where they are. So I think as a, I think we've really fallen down on the job as a communication strategy of describing to your average New Yorker what that housing policy is. It also is by focusing just on a unit target. There's lots of things about housing policy that we miss. So we don't talk about as a race, which is Greatly affected by housing policy. We don't talk about the New York City Housing Authority, which is excluded from those numbers. It allows us to sort of claim mission accomplished on an affordable housing target when the homelessness numbers are going up and up and up. So I think in the world of you get what you measure, we have done an incredible job doing an ever-increasing number of affordable units. And for those families, those units have been an amazing lifeline. Um, But it kind of narrows the vision of what an affordable housing plan can do, and it leaves a lot out to the side. So we saw that overcrowding, for example, is an incredible risk for COVID during this pandemic. The city of New York has virtually no housing policy that addresses overcrowding per se. We don't really have housing policies that address residential segregation, racial segregation in the city of New York. So, by just focusing on the greatest number of units, we don't care where they are, we don't care who they're for we leave a lot of housing policy issues to the side, which I think we have to fix in the next administration.
0: Why do you think the city governments do that? I mean, considering there are all these incredibly clever, um, engaged, I imagine, people working on these ideas, why do they say, let's set a number and go for it? As you said, it's not just the Debasio administration. You've worked under a number of administrations and they all kind of set targets. You're saying that it doesn't totally fix the problem. Why do you think that they continue to do it? Well, I think it
1: has some political
0: appeal. You know, my plan is, is bigger than the last mayor's
1: plan is powerful. And we're seeing that to a certain extent in this mayoral election um, campaign season as well. It's a single number that everybody can agree on and it's easy to measure. So while it's a little bit hard to know at any given moment, you know, I can't tell you off the top of my head, if I'm working at HPD, how many people were hospitalized for asthma in the last year, I, that's a harder number to get. But I can tell you how many deals we've closed in the last year. So there's some sort of management and administrative reasons why it's nice to focus on a number that you have control over that's completely within your purview. But as we've discussed, it leaves a lot to the side. And the history of housing policy was not always focused on, you know, city government agencies building affordable housing themselves. Often it was to create a larger health outcome, to create larger social outcomes. And I think we've lost that a little bit as the affordable housing the social movement has kind of turned into affordable housing and industry.
0: Can you explain what you mean by that? You, you're you saying that uh, affordable housing ideas were set up to focus on health in the past. Is that the right? Are you talking about back before New York City was this kind of incredibly expensive, uh, very attractive place that was drawing people from all over the world? Can you break down what you mean by that? Sure. So the You know, the origins of housing policy, of of the way that government intervenes
1: in the housing market in New York City and really across the world was explicitly about health outcomes, right? We created housing codes specifically in order to prevent the spread of infectious diseases across New York City and other places. So we created rules about sanitation and about windows, um, and this was all to protect people's health in the event of, you know, infectious diseases and, and epidemics. So over the course of the last century or so, we've sort of seeded that ground that's no longer housing policy's job. Now we look towards technology and medical medical advances to solve those kind of public health problems for us. And now we look at affordable housing policy more as an economic intervention. But it really, over the last year, we saw the limits of that, where in the absence of a vaccine, we needed to very quickly house people. We needed to keep, make people be able to help them isolate from each other in the event of an infectious disease. And we were sort of, un, we had not flexed those muscles in about a century of, of using housing policy tools to address, for example, health outcomes.
0: Isn't that extraordinary to consider that, that there was originally set up to about health and, and housing was connected so closely. We shifted away from that and then come our pandemic, and the first thing that we needed to solve was housing because we needed people to be able to stay away from other people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and another, another similar analogy was we used to, um, we have a very long, deep history of racism in our housing policies in this country. And then when we kind of outlawed all of those discriminatory rules, we thought, well, maybe if we just make the racist laws against the law and create some colorblind policies, then that will address our legacy of racism. Well, it didn't do that, but now we're in this very difficult moment of trying to figure out how is it possible to use colorblind policies to address centuries of racism, or do we have to do something a little bit more proactive than that? We're in the middle of some very difficult land use battles around rezoning, you know, whiter, wealthier neighborhoods. And it's, it's a difficult reckoning for a city that kind of thought of itself as being a progressive
0: city for whom racism was a part of our past. So, for example, we talked about the numbers, right, setting goals, setting targets. And obviously, as we talk about almost every day in the media, we're in a mayoral election, we're about a month from the primaries, from the Democratic primaries. And I look at the coverage of the mayor's the various mayoral candidates um housing policies and they all have various ideas but you're right each of them do have kind of like a target each of them are releasing numbers well, i'll do this if i become mayor does that give you pause when you look back on previous administrations doing basically the same thing
1: um A bit, yes, but I do think that the number is important. It just can't be the entirety of your housing policy, right? The economic development energy um, that created by the affordable housing production that we do under those numbers is incredibly important in every past crisis that the city of New York has been through, it's been those kind of publicly funded projects that have kickstarted the economy, that have given the rest of the, all the other sectors kind of the confidence to come back into the city. So I do think that that economic development activity and the housing development is incredibly critical. It just needs to be done in the context of why, where, for who, there's a lot of unanswered questions with that. And for that, I think um, some of the candidates have come up with some, Um, really smart ideas. So we've briefed all of them. We're a 501c3, so we're not endorsing any particular candidate, but we have briefed anybody who would listen on what our strategies and approaches are. And it is about setting a unit target, but as well about figuring out what your values are first, and then worrying about the unit target afterwards. So we're writing a series of housing plans. So if the entire housing plan can't be, I want to do X number of units a year, So we're writing a variety of housing plans to kind of give the mayoral candidates a chance to kind of be creative and play about what they think their housing plan should be for. So we wrote a housing plan for a city of immigrants that sort of honors the fact that we really need immigration as a driver of our growth and economic development here in the city and to honor the contributions of all of the um, immigrants that have come and built our city historically. We're writing a feminist housing plan. We are writing a housing plan for health. So if your top reasons for building a housing policy would kind of go back to our roots as we talked about as health policy, it wouldn't be chapter one, new construction, chapter two, preservation. It would be chapter one, lead, chapter two, asthma. Um, to really go through and figure out how you can use all those affordable housing tools that you have at your disposal to use those to affect health outcomes.
0: You said you're talking to anyone who will listen. Are they all listening? Did, did you get to speak to everybody? How we, briefed, we briefed all the campaigns. Yeah, we briefed okay. most of the candidates directly and all the campaigns. Okay, and and what do you, when you look at what they're offering right now, I know you can't endorse anybody because you're a nonprofit, but is there anything or anything specific that you've seen or you've heard that you think this is this is innovative, this is a step in the right direction?
1: Well, I think across the board, the two major topics that I want to make sure we see in the next administration are to make sure that, Our housing policy is inextricably linked with our homelessness policy and that NYCHA is not left to the side. So I think those two things I think are pretty well established in this campaign season as being critical. So we hope whoever does become the next mayor continues to follow through on those. So making sure that NYCHA is central to the housing plan and that addressing homelessness is central to the housing plan. So I think those two are very important. I also think that in what hopefully will be a wonderful, quick, economic recovery for our city, but just in case it's not, um, not looking at capital expenditures as the only solution and our only tool and our toolkit for housing policy. So there's lots of regulatory reforms you can do to rather than having government pay for things to just have government get out of the way a little bit so that we're able to more easily move forward to have more streamlined processes, both for housing development itself, but also to kind of get out of the way of some of the bureaucracy that it takes for a New Yorker to get through some of those social safety net programs that they're going to need so much now more than ever.
0: So I know you can't endorse anyone again but is there anyone who said anything that looks like it might be going in the right direction considering those two key things which are one homelessness needs to be closely attached to the affordable housing and two people can't forget about NYCHA.
1: Um, so I think I think everybody has pretty well um, addressed both of those things. I'll call out two in particular. So we've seen Eric Adams um, say some really smart things about how the bureaucracy of working your way through the system that you would need in order to get help from the government, how we really need to re-examine and streamline those and make sure that we make it a little easier for people who need government's help to get access to it. Um, and then Catherine Garcia was obviously the city's lead czar for many years. So she knows a lot about how to pull the levers to make sure that our housing is free of lead lead paint hazards, as well as talking about asthma a lot in her platform as well.
0: You said that homelessness needs to be closely attached to um, affordable housing policies um, when it comes to city government. That sounds like you think that, that, that it's slipped away. What do you think that is? Well, I think, Structural
1: reason why the two aren't as closely linked as we may like is that the two are have two separate chains of command in City Hall. So, for the last I don't know, probably 20 years or more, we've had a deputy mayor for housing and economic development, and then the Department of Homeless Services reports to a different deputy mayor. So, fundamentally, we look at them as two separate problems to be solved by two separate teams of people. So, the two agencies that are in charge of these two issues are. Treated completely separately, and they have two completely separate kind of administrative chains of command in City Hall. So right away, we're not set up for those two problems to be treated as 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 one. Whoever's responsible for solving the homelessness crisis has to also have housing tools at their disposal. It can't just be homeless services um, is the name of the agency, but fundamentally, you solve homelessness through housing. So if the housing agency is completely separate from that, that that creates a rift
0: right away. That's been one of the kind of the criticisms not that structural concept, but one of the criticisms of de Blasio's policies. The the description has been, and some of the analysis has been that it created housing, but not for very vulnerable people. How do you think, you know, going forward, how do you think both of those issues can be addressed? Because obviously homelessness is like a crisis problem. Affordable housing is also a big issue. How do you think they can both be given this both enough time of day? Um, Well, you know, I think there is, there's a lot to be said for a mixed income model.
1: So we certainly, we as an organization certainly agree that there should be housing created at a mix of different income levels. But I do think that the chain of command, as we said, is important. And if you're trying to create a housing product for the very, very poorest and most vulnerable New Yorkers, that takes more than just the capital to build a building in the first place. That also takes an ongoing stream of rental subsidy to subsidize the rents going forward. So in order for an operator, a nonprofit or for-profit landlord to be able to keep the lights on and do the property management and do a good job maintaining a building, somebody needs to be earning about you know, somewhere between 60 and 80% of the area median income in order for their rent to cover those costs. If you're trying to house somebody who's much, much lower income than that, then the money that they can afford to pay towards rent is not enough to keep the lights on and keep the hallways clean in that building. So it takes not only the capital subsidy to build a building in the first place, but also a subsidy that's an ongoing rental subsidy as well. So the biggest game changer that would address that is if the Biden administration is able to make good on its promise to have Section 8 as an entitlement. Um, that would be a completely change overnight, the entire dynamics of the affordable housing business here in New York City. So that's something that we're really, really fighting and hoping for that would be our most most
0: amazing tool in
1: order to move that forward.
0: Do you think that's a possibility? Do you think it's likely? I mean, they promise, but... Um, you know, housing was a
1: surprisingly central to the presidential election. So that was something that we like to see no matter what. You saw all the, all the Democratic candidates line up one after another and make very, very robust promises around housing. And the Biden administration was no exception to that. So, you know, it just depends, like with everything at the federal government right now, it depends on whether we um, are going to prioritize bipartisanship over some of these other um, goals that we have and what are, we, what are our priorities going to be in this first couple of years. So it's a very, it's a very, it's a very heavy lift, but it's an incredibly worthy goal. And it would be the biggest, um, you know, sea change in housing policy. And it's gotta be a hundred years.
0: I wanna go back to um, uh, something that you mentioned earlier, which was that the city's kind of looking at itself right now. I, I can't remember your exact term, but the, the sense I got was that we really have to kind of think very hard about how we wanna go forward as a city. What's your, What's your sense on which direction it's taking? know, I think the next few months are really critical. Um, We are, we have to see how, how quickly
1: can we dig ourselves out of this economic crisis now that the vaccine is here and also how much can we hold on to this hopefully deeper understanding of the inequalities in our city and how much can we not leave those in the past as we try to charge forward to, you know, up to our recovery. So one suggestion that we had in order to try to square both of those themes, were to set aside housing for essential workers specifically. So we've seen how much we need these essential workers. They kept us alive and fed and safe in our homes for those of us who are lucky enough to work from home through this pandemic. Um, and then what did we do? We clapped, you know, we clapped and banged pots and pans every night at seven. So I think it, it's really time for us to put our money where our mouth is and say that we really want to honor and protect and reward those essential workers, many of whom were working in very, very difficult conditions over the pandemic, had very, very long commutes, and inadequate protection. Um, so if we've decided now that we recognize this new category of essential workers as being truly that essential, then we need to make sure that we find a place for them in our city. So we've, we've recommended and wrote a couple papers about finding affordable housing and setting it aside specifically for essential workers so they could continue to live in the neighborhoods that they choose to live in, reduce their commute times, and just make it a stronger, more resilient city altogether because we need those workers so terribly.
0: What sort of other ideas are you, are you playing around with or suggesting or examining as a potential um, way to dig ourselves out, as you say, in the next few months? So I think like the regulatory reforms around some of
1: our social safety net programs, so streamlining the process to get housing if you're in a shelter, streamlining the process for our housing lotteries um, and some of our other public programs, we also think that needs to happen in the zoning code and in our code enforcement process. So we have a code enforcement process that's sort of designed for a big developer who has a lot of lawyer and a lot of resources. It's not really designed for a low income homeowner who's just doing their best with limited resources. So we had also suggested that the city do what we're calling an equity audit of its own code enforcement processes to make sure that they're not creating a set of rules where low income homeowners are set up to fail.
0: Zoning has been rezoning has been a massive issue in in the past few years and even in the past few few months in the past few days. We've seen, you know, Inwood being caught up for years in the rezoning. Gowanus, there was a lawsuit against that. Sunset Park fell over completely and didn't go ahead. Soho Noho rezoning, I believe, was held up and is now going ahead thanks to a a decision from a judge. What's your view on rezonings? Sorry, I realise that is a very broad question. (laughs) But generally speaking, I mean, is, is rezoning on this on the good side of, the, of, of getting more housing getting more affordable housing helping the city become more equitable or on the other side we it ma- won't make it more equitable where do, where do you land well so you
1: know rezonings have become such a lightning rod for all of the other both equity and land use issues that we see in new york city Rezonings can do both. You can rezone for more housing, you can rezone for less housing, you can rezone to make it easier to build things, to make it harder to build things. Um, And each of the rezonings that administrations tend to propose are a combination of those things. I think one thing that's changed over the past couple of years um, is that we've seen increasing... First of all, we've seen for the first time during this administration, the de Blasio administration, trying to really put their money where their mouth is to rezoning whiter, wealthier communities to address the housing shortage. So that's new and that's something that we haven't seen before. And not surprisingly, when you start to do land use changes in these wealthier, whiter neighborhoods, they have more resources to fight back. So you're seeing a more pitched battle in some of those neighborhoods that have greater resources to fight back. like soho greater, for
0: example like, like
1: soho exactly right. so you know there it's easier for those communities to hire lawyers it's easier for them to get organized they just have more resources with which to with which to start the fight so that's one aspect that we're seeing another aspect that we're seeing is kind of a slight change in the way we discuss who gets to decide what's best for a neighborhood and what's best for a city so historically The land use process has privileged homeowners. It privileges people who live, you know, who've lived in a neighborhood the longest, and it's privileged people who are homeowners for the longest, and it's privileged people who have the time and the energy to come to these very, very long, sometimes endless meetings about some of these projects. So one thing that's changed in the last couple of rezonings is some groups around the city saying no. Maybe I don't live in Soho right now, but I'd like to live in Soho someday. And this inclusionary zoning is this exclusionary zoning is preventing me from doing so. Or, you know, the reason why we're seeing so much gentrification in parts of Brooklyn is because Soho never did their part to increase their housing supply. So now people start looking elsewhere and start getting pushed out. And then those residents in turn start getting pushed out. So I think there's part of the battle around some of these more recent rezonings. Isn't just about the rezoning themselves, but it's fundamentally around who gets the say. Is it only the people who've lived in that neighborhood, who have been homeowners in that neighborhood for 20 years, who get to have an opinion about what happens to the future of that neighborhood? Or does the whole city get to say, you know, we really need more housing citywide. Everyone's got to do their part or we've been excluded from this neighborhood historically. You're right, we don't live in this neighborhood, but we still wanna have a say because what if we someday want to, or we have wanted to live there and we weren't able to because of your exclusionary zoning. So I think some of those conversations are happening now. And ironically, those conversations also happened as the pandemic hit and we moved to a lot of virtual meetings. And when we moved the meetings to virtual and you no longer had to leave your house, travel, sit in a hot room for hours and hours and wait to testify, you saw a very different profile of the kind of people who are willing to come out and make their voice heard either for or against any particular land use issue.
0: So that's an example of the pandemic making things a little bit more equitable. I believe so. We've seen many, many more people
1: participating in these meetings. Um, Many, many more people come. I've been to meetings where someone, you know, one person's making dinner for their kids Someone else is driving home from work. Someone else is listening into the meeting in the waiting room of their doctor's office. So it really allows busy New Yorkers from all walks of life to participate in the Civic process, which previously was really intended for a select few who had the privilege of taking that kind of time and energy and typically had very strong opinions because that's really what it takes to be sitting you know, in person in a six hour meeting that takes you out of some of the other obligations of your life. So I think this does kind of level the playing field a lot in terms of who can participate in these conversations.
0: Thank you so much uh, for making time, Jessica. I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you so much. This is really fun.